Well, good morning. So let's get the obvious out of the way. It is the day after Christmas. And I'll tell you, if there's ever a challenge in choosing what to preach, it coincides with a holiday. Uh, you know, picking a book to work through chapter by chapter, verse by book, or verse by verse, takes the guesswork out most of the time. But when it coincides with a holiday, there's an added challenge. So when we were working through the preaching schedule in the office, and uh, it became apparent that it would be good for me to preach today, uh, I thought about what was coming next in Genesis, and of course, I realized what is coming next is the judgment of the flood. Uh, and I thought, of course, nothing says day after Christmas like judgment. <laughs> But Pastor Dan and I talked about it, and since I'm actually going to be preaching uh, both this morning and next Sunday, he agreed that it would be good to jump back into Genesis on one condition, uh, and that is that I make the connection for you all in a certain way. And so let me uh, try to make that connection. Uh, there are a number of movie versions of Dr. Seuss's classic, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. <laughs> in one of the more recent versions, Cindy Lou Who catches the Grinch, who is dressed as Santa in the process of removing her family's Christmas tree from their house. After the Grinch reassures her that he's simply taking the tree so that he can repair it, Cindy Lou asks him, Santa, what's the real meaning of Christmas? Without a second's hesitation, the Grinch thrusts his head through the Christmas tree and answers, vengeance. <laughs> so there you go, the real meaning... <laughs> The real meaning of Christmas, according to the Grinch, vengeance, is directly connected with our text <laughs> for this morning. Now, in, in all seriousness, besides the fact that actually we've been out of Genesis since September, uh, and so I've been eager to get back to Genesis, I think you'll see that our text for this morning is actually, in a sense, very timely for the day after Christmas. I want you to think for a moment, and actually I want you to tell me, especially you children, is the day after Christmas happy or is it sad? Happy, okay. I was, so I asked my kids this, and they right away said sad. So I'm glad you're happy. Now, the day after Christmas, at least in some ways, is sad, isn't it? You've had all these gifts and food and treats that you've looked forward to for weeks. You've had lots of time off from school, but now all the gifts are opened, and the return to schoolwork with probably no breaks until March or so, all of that suddenly feels like it's coming at you like a freight train. And even more seriously, the truth is, for many, that it can be hard for Christmas itself to be marked by hope. For many, the holidays don't do much to interrupt loneliness or sickness or other occasions for sadness. Now, if by contrast, you've been free from care, if you and those you love are enjoying good health, your work situation is good, your finances are exactly where you would want them, your relationships are all going well, and you've managed to keep your eyes off from the news headlines, then I'm really happy for you. But that's not most of us, is it? Really, just take a quick glance at what's going on in our country and in our world, especially relative to the place of Christians and the Bible in our culture, and things look far more calamitous a lot of times than hopeful. In a country where it once seemed that biblical morality was assumed, if not consistently practiced, it lately seems possible that Christians could soon suffer actual persecution for our faith. The rich and the powerful seem increasingly willing and able to thwart God's law without consequence. I get that picture, and I'm not even on social media. My sense is that for those who are, or who give much attention to political commentary, things probably appear even bleaker. 
So if this is your situation this morning, whether you feel the letdown of the day after Christmas or if the holiday season itself has been marked this year by sadness or difficulty, or if it's just that you find yourself wondering how God's righteousness has any hope of prevailing in a godless society, then you, like Noah in his day, you need to know the truth about Yahweh, the one true God. You need to know that Yahweh sees you in your misery. You need to know that he keeps his promises. And you need to know that Yahweh's good word to you is full of life-giving, life-saving instructions. These are the three pillars of our salvation hope as we find them in our text for this morning. And if you haven't already, I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 6. And please stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 6. Now it happened when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were good in appearance and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then Yahweh said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he indeed is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And Yahweh regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. And Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among those in his generations. Noah walked with God. And Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms, and you shall cover it inside and out with pitch. Now this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and complete it to one cubit from the top and set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. As for me, behold, I am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall breathe its last. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall enter the ark you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. 
of the birds after their kind, and of the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible, and gather it to yourself, and it shall be for food for you and for them. Thus Noah did, according to all that God had commanded him, so he did." May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Would you please bow your heads with me and pray for God's help as his word goes forth this morning. Father, we humble ourselves and we bow ourselves before you as is appropriate. You are the God of all the earth. You are the God of all creation. And Father, you do whatever you please in all the earth and in all creation. Father, as we consider this account this morning, uh, Father, we pray that you would uh, have your way in our hearts, that you would help us to be uh, affected by the reality of your judgment against sin, uh, Father, but also affected by the reality of your promise and your faithfulness to keep your promises. Father, we pray that you would build your body up in encouragement in Christ. Father, that you would be glorified in the Lord, that as, as a result of your word, we would look more like your son. We pray in his name. Amen. So here in Genesis 6, as I said, we find three pillars of our salvation hope. But, as is often the case, the hopefulness of good news begins here with the seeming hopelessness of bad news. The first eight verses of this chapter complete a major section that began in chapter 5, verse 1. Now, just a note as we get started about the structure of the sermon for today, you see the verse numbers on the outline. You can just go ahead and scratch those out, probably. Uh, as I progressed in my study this past week, I realized these pillars of uh, God's faithfulness are kind of more dispersed in the text than I was realizing initially. So in, in large part, those verses will fit, but you'll find we jump around a little bit more than that seems to indicate. Uh, now that being said, we will start with looking at these first eight verses of chapter 6, which as I said, these verses form the conclusion of the section that starts in chapter 5, verse 1. And what this conclusion shows in brief is the misery of God's people. And really, this is a theme that reaches back to chapter 4 and the murder of Abel by Cain. You see, just as God promised, the descendants of the serpent are at enmity with the descendants of the woman. And as we find Cain's line with its worldly aspirations, as it accumulates power and greatness, and even as it commits violence and makes threats in chapter 4, alongside these seeds of the serpent, we find the seed of the woman embodied in Seth's line. We saw in chapter 5 how their hope in the promised Messiah culminated in Enoch, seventh from Adam, as he walked with God, and it says he was not, for God took him. Then, back just a few verses from chapter 6, in chapter 5, verse 29, we read this. Now Lamech called his son's name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work, and from the pain of our hands arising from the ground which Yahweh has cursed. From these words of Lamech, we understand what the seed of the woman is looking for, that the righteous are looking for relief. 
Whereas Cain's line had fully invested their hopes in worldly wealth and cultural advancements and power, the seed of the woman is characterized by calling on the name of Yahweh and hoping in the messianic promise. And what we find in the beginning of chapter 6, leading up to the next major section break, is that what characterizes the existence of the life of the faithful is an earthly misery. It says, verse 1, that men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. And then verse 2, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were good in appearance, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. So the question that arises here is, who are these sons of God, and who, for that matter, are the daughters of men? Well, although a lot of ink has been spilt on this over the years, the answer is actually pretty simple if you pay attention to the progress of Revelation. You may recall that I've mentioned previously that there is a book of the Bible that was written before Genesis. You guys remember what book that is? Job. Job was likely written at least 500 years before Genesis. And something that is generally true of progressive revelation is that when something has already been written about in the Bible, a later author can come along and refer to it. And he doesn't say nearly as much about it because he doesn't need to, because it was already written about in the Bible. So I'm going to ask you to turn with me to the book of Job. Turn to the book of Job, and we'll see this in a few verses in chapter 1 and then chapter 2. And this will be good to see in the text starting with verse 6 in chapter 1. Now it was the day that the sons of God came to stand before Yahweh, and Satan also came among them. So notice that. The sons of God came to stand before Yahweh, and Satan is among them. And Yahweh said to Satan, From where do you come? Then Satan answered Yahweh and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And so you have the sons of God, and it seems... Uh, Satan is one of them as the chief of the fallen angels, and his time is spent on the earth, it says. Uh, following this, we have the exchange, of course, between God and Satan concerning Job, and then we find a very similar scene once again in the first two verses of Job 2, so just probably the next page in your Bible. Again, it was the day that the sons of God came to stand before Yahweh, and Satan also came among them to stand himself before Yahweh. And Yahweh said to Satan, Where do you come from? Then Satan answered Yahweh and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking about on it. So, here is a case where paying attention to the added detail provided by earlier revelation gives a clear answer. Who are the sons of God? They are the heavenly beings, the angels. And this accords, by the way, with Second Peter 2, where we read this morning about the punishment of disobedient angels. And Jude, actually, uh, with very similar content to Peter, goes into more detail. He says this in verses 6 and 7, that angels who did not keep their, their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, God has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, having indulged in the same way as these in gross sexual immorality and having gone after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So notice the connections there. Paying attention to the details, Jude is referring back to Genesis 6, the only place in Scripture where angels are seen engaging in sexual immorality, going after strange flesh like those did in Sodom and Gomorrah. 
And so we find Jude agrees with Job, further confirmation that the sons of God here are fallen angels. Now, back to Genesis 6, the sons of God, the fallen angels, weren't alone in their rebellion. Also involved are the daughters of men. Uh, And this I would take to mean women probably, although perhaps not exclusively, from Cain's line. We also find mention of their offspring, referred to as the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now, without spending too much more time on this, the main point here is that whereas men like Seth and his descendants were clearly looking for a heavenly hope, these mighty men, as they're referred to, and these could be the very same men of Cain's line, whom we read of in chapter 4, these mighty men were full of earthly strength and renown. And so what's in view here we might call a conspiracy between fallen angels and powerful great men of the earth. These together are the seed of the serpent anticipated in chapter 3. By conspiring together, these men and angels proceed to fill the earth with all manner of wickedness, and thereby with misery for God's people. Now moving on to verse 5, we find the real meat of this first main point, that Yahweh sees this misery of his people. It says, verse 5, Then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth. Now, in order to catch the full import of this, you need to recall what we've seen already, that the wickedness on the earth we could see as a boon to the wicked. They were, they were benefited in some ways by it. It was their desire that this wickedness be brought out. It was a boon to them, to the seed of the serpent, but that it was oppression and sadness and misery to the faithful of chapter 5, whose hope was in the promised Messiah. This understanding is further supported by looking ahead a little bit to verses 11 and 13, where it says that the earth was filled with violence. That Hebrew word translated violence is often connected in Scripture with oppression. It sometimes involves brute force, and it is often used to describe the exploitation of the weak by the strong or the poor by the rich. So the earth was filled with violence, with oppression and with the exploitation of the weak by those who were great, by those who had worldly power and greatness, and they were afflicting uh, those whose hope in chapter 5 is in Yahweh. Now that, along with what we've recalled from chapters 4 and 5, should start to give you an idea of the oppression and the brutality that were filling the earth in Noah's day and the effect that this was having on the faithful. Now, as we read of God's people experiencing the difficulties of life in a fallen world, this should resonate with us. Sin and its effects are all around us. If you're like me, and perhaps even as we read through Genesis 6, this was occurring to you, that you've seen evidence of sin and fallenness coming from your own heart this past week. You've seen it perhaps in family relationships where the strain is especially evident around the holidays. Some of us have faced more than usual the sadness and the hardship that come with sickness. And even for some of us with death hitting close to home. And so whether it's anxiety over what's happening in the world or it's simply a matter of the darkness you see coming from your own heart, we can identify with Noah in a world where the evil of man is great on the earth. And so the question we might ask is this, where is God in this? With the opening words of verse 5, we get an answer to that question. 
God is not removed from us. He is not far off enjoying himself. With these words, God provides perhaps the most devastating assessment in his response to it in all of Scripture of the evil that goes on in the hearts of sinners. Then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Then it says Yahweh saw. Yahweh sees. He sees that the misery on earth is due to what? Where does it come from? He sees that it comes from the hearts of sinners. And how many of the thoughts of the heart of man are evil? Every single one of them. How often? Continually. This is an absolutely devastating assessment. And see now, verse 6, the effect that this has on Yahweh. It says, And Yahweh regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Now here again, we have a potential difficulty that I want to comment on just briefly. The text says that God regretted, or that he was sorry. This word, and, and if you have the King James, Russ was pointing out this morning, it says uh, that he repented. Uh, so it can mean to repent or to change one's mind. It's the same word that we find in Numbers 23, verse 19, which says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. That's the same word. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not establish it? So all I want to point out here is that however we understand the text in Genesis 6, we can't understand it in such a way as to deny God's changelessness. God is not affected by his creation in a way that can be said to change him. Whatever he has said, he will do, and whatever he has spoken, he will establish. He is changeless, and his word is firmly fixed and doesn't change. But that being said, uh, I want you to catch the full weight of what is being said here. We should be blown away by this, that the fact that what God sees here has an absolutely profound effect on him. God looks and sees the misery of the earth, that it is full of evil and violence, and he says he is grieved in his heart. The word grieved itself has to do with the innermost feelings, inner feelings often connected with weeping, mourning, sorrow, and pain. And even though the word itself carries the idea of inner turmoil, additional words are included to say that God experienced this inner anguish in his heart. So there's sort of a compounded sense. This is a pain and a sorrow that God speaks of as having grieved him to his very core. And God is so moved by what he sees in the misery of the earth that his sorrow is expressed in a way that approaches the impossible, as I said a moment ago that God wishes he hadn't done something which he had done. God is so grieved and pained over what he sees coming from man that he, in a sense, wishes he had never made man. Beloved, this is what you need to know in the difficulties you face. You are not alone in your sorrow and pain and difficulty. Yahweh sees you in your misery and even more than that, he knows and experiences your sorrows even more intensely than you do. This brings us to point number two in our outline for this morning. First, Yahweh sees you in your misery. Number two, Yahweh keeps his promises. 
So, and not to belabor the point, but this is important enough to repeat, that the essence of the promises Yahweh sets out to keep here is found in Genesis 3, verse 15. And if you're back in Genesis 6, you could just flip over a couple pages and see that verse. Genesis 3, verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. What we've seen so far in the misery of the faithful is a fulfillment of part of this promise. There is indeed enmity between the serpent's seed and the woman's seed, and it is intensifying the longing of the faithful for their heavenly hope. Now we consider a partial fulfillment of these words, he shall bruise you on the head. This is a promise of judgment against the serpent, and by extension, of all of those, his seed, who are joined together with him in rebellion against Yahweh. Now let me say at this point that there are two sides to this. There is judgment, which is what we're going to see first, and then there's salvation through the promised seed of the woman, and that's coming a little bit later. The first clear expression of the judgment we find in Genesis 6 comes in verse 3, where God says these words, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he indeed is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Now, backing up a little, this is best understood as Yahweh's response to the situation in verses 1 and 2. In verse 2, the the word translated good in appearance, that the daughters of men were good in appearance. This is the Hebrew word, which simply means good. The word tov, good. And so can you think of another place where someone looked at something and saw that it was good? God repeatedly in chapter 1 looked at what he created and he declared that it was good. But then you may recall that same wording was used in chapter 3, that the woman saw that the tree was good for food and she took and she ate. Whereas in chapter 1, it was clearly God's prerogative to declare what was good, and Eve in chapter 3 took that right to herself. And here we read the sons of God, the fallen angels, here they see that the daughters of men are good, and they take for themselves whichever women they want for their wives. By this consistent use of language, God is showing that the rebellion started in the garden to which the parties were mankind and a fallen angel. This rebellion is seen here to be multiplying. And it is this set of circumstances that God is responding to in verse 3. Now the question here is what is represented by 120 years? Is it the lifespan of man, that man's life would be limited to 120 years going forward? The answer to this is no for a few reasons. First, people continued living long past the age of 120 in the close context following the flood. Secondly, even when lifespans had finally decreased to nearly what they are today, near the end of Deuteronomy, we read that Moses' brother Aaron lived past 120, to the age of 123. And then, more importantly, really, than either of those two reasons, the answer is demonstrated in the wording of verse 3 in light of what comes next. God says that his spirit will not strive or remain with man forever. And by implication, he's saying that he would cease striving or remaining with man after 120 years. And then, as we'll see next week, most pointedly, this similar language being used, 
in chapter 7, verse 22, we find that God, in the flood narrative, removes his spirit or his breath from every living person on the earth. And so that's 120 years, the time from the giving of this truth that the, the judgment is coming until it's carried out. To this end, we read in verse 7, And Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to the birds of the sky, for I regret that I have made them. Here again, as the narrative builds and we see more details, we see again the repentance aspect, so to speak, for the Lord. These words are immediately reminiscent of the creation account. He says, from man to animals to creeping things to birds, all those categories that we read of in Genesis 1. Basically, it's saying Yahweh will uncreate everything he had made. He will blot it out, it says, or another word, he will exterminate it. Everything. All life that he has made, he will wipe it away. Jumping ahead a little to verses 11 to 14, we find God reiterating his evaluation of the corruption of the earth. And uh, the point that, that God is driving home in these verses, and it may seem a little repetitive, but there's, there's more to be gleaned here. The point he's driving home in these verses is that the corruption, and another word that can be used and later is in verse 13, is destruction. So I don't know what your version says, but those two words that line up with corruption and destruction, it's actually the same word in the Hebrew. So there's, a, there's an emphasis here that this corruption or destruction is something that man, who, had, who is flesh, had brought about himself. He had brought about his own destruction. And so in verse 15, God's destruction of the whole world is simply going to confirm and complete the self-destruction that man himself had already begun in the earth in his alliance with the fallen angels. With verse 17, we find God's summary of his plan for judgment, including again, some additional detail. He says, As for me, behold, I am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life. And that, that word breath is the same word for spirit. So all flesh in which his spirit has given life will be destroyed. From under heaven, everything that is on the earth shall breathe its last. Now, as uncomfortable as this might be, it is important to see that God's promise of salvation includes, and doesn't just include, but is actually accomplished through his devastating judgment. Yahweh here promises that he will crush all of those in rebellion against him by means of a worldwide flood. It is not just the serpent, but his seed also. All who follow the serpent as his children as the children of the devil. All of these will experience the judgment stored up for the serpent whom Yahweh has promised to crush. And so this is a fulfillment of the first half of God's salvation promise. Alongside all of these indications of judgment in Genesis 6, there are at the same time indications that Yahweh is keeping the other half of his salvation promise as well. This starts in verse 6, where Moses writes that Yahweh was grieved in his heart as he looked on the misery of the earth. With these words, we find a connection back to chapter 5, verse, nine, verse 29, 
That's the verse where Lamech names his son Noah with the hope, it says, that Noah would give us rest from our work and from the pain of our hands. Those two words translated rest and pain, those words share the same roots as the words in Genesis 6, in verse 6, translated regretted and grieved. So you have two words in verse 29, two of the main words in verse 29 are the same roots as these two words in verse 6 of chapter 6. And so the significance of this is, if you recall, Lamech's prophecy there in chapter 5, verse 29, about Noah is connected with the earlier prophecies about Seth. And those are connected with God's promise in Genesis 3.15. And what's that promise of? The Messiah. And so, recall from our previous point that God knows and experiences your sorrows even more intensely than you do. We saw that with the description of God's pain and grief as he looked on the sin of the world. But here, with verse 6, we catch a glimpse of the greatest evidence of it in the Bible. That God knows and experiences your sorrows even more intensely than you do. And what is that proof? It's found in the promise, now fulfilled, connected with those words. God demonstrates his participation in our pain and our sorrow most intensely as he bears them himself in the person of Jesus on the cross. And so, even as we read of Yahweh's evaluation of the sinful and miserable condition of the world, he connects his own experience of this misery with the hope he has given in the promised Messiah. Moving ahead to verse 8, this hope finds further confirmation when we read this. But Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. Noah, as we've begun to see, is the very embodiment of the messianic promise. He will become God's means of the preservation both of the promise and with it of all mankind. There's one particular detail I want you to note in verse 8. The word favor is the Hebrew word, the Old Testament word for grace. This is the word that God uses in Exodus 33 after Moses asks him to show him his glory. God says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. God decides on whom he will have favor. This is at the heart of the meaning of this word, favor, or grace. Entailed in its very meaning is that it is undeserved. What this means is that even Noah, the embodiment, we'll see, of the promise and of blamelessness among his generation, even Noah did not deserve to be spared. While this is the first appearance of this word in Genesis, it isn't the first appearance of the concept. You remember back in Genesis 3, what had God promised would happen if Adam and Eve sinned? He promised they would die. Instead, they found undeserved favor in his eyes, such that he led them to confession and covered them with the skin of his own animal, which he had spilt the blood of instead of theirs. And so again, here in verse 8, Noah finds undeserved favor in the eyes of Yahweh. With verse 9, we find another major section in Genesis. Uh, it starts here in verse 9, marked by the Hebrew word that means generations. Verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Now this begins a section of Genesis, which goes through 
chapter 9 that is basically the account of God's faithfulness to all of humanity through Noah. Continuing in verse 9, we read, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among those in his generations. Noah walked with God. You see, although Noah did not deserve God's favor, we find here that this does not mean that there was no difference between Noah and all of the other sinners of the world. On the contrary, this is a striking description of a man. Noah is described here in thorough and holistic terms as being morally upright in his conduct. The word blameless has the sense of being full of integrity. Another way of saying this would be that Noah was above reproach. And these words single him out that among those in his generations, Noah was looked on as blameless. And then we find a connection back to Enoch in chapter 5, the paradigm so far of one with a heavenly hope. It says, Noah, like Enoch, walked with God. And so here we find, once again, that Yahweh is keeping his promise. In spite of the thorough corruption of mankind on the earth, the seed of the woman, and with it the promised hope of all humanity bound up with the promised Messiah, is still alive in the world. We read further in verse 10 that Noah had three sons also, through whom the hope of a remnant could be preserved. The hope of this aspect of God's promise, that he will indeed keep his promise of victory for the human seed of the woman, culminates with verse 18. Having given in verse 17 his clearest description yet of the coming judgment of the flood, Yahweh says this, But I will establish my covenant with you. While this is the first appearance of the word covenant in Genesis, the way it is used here suggests the reestablishment of something that is already in place. What promise had Yahweh given that was already in place? Once again, the promise of Genesis 3.15. By confirming his covenant or his promise with Noah, God is establishing that even as he destroys all of earthly life under his judgment, at the same time he will preserve Noah and the promise of the Messiah with him. This is the other side of the promise. Yahweh keeps his promises. On the one side of his promise is judgment. The relief the line of Seth longed for comes to the world in a way that reflects the ugliness of sin. God's judgment against our sin is necessarily full of power and wrath. As Malachi asks in chapter 3, verse 2, But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a smelter's fire and like fuller's soap. But on the other side of God's promise is salvation. And remember that even Noah himself did not deserve salvation. Noah deserved God's judgment. But instead, God promises to preserve him. Now you might wonder, if Noah was righteous and blameless, why didn't he deserve salvation? And on the other hand, if he didn't deserve salvation, then why does God promise to save him? If you're asking these questions, then praise the Lord, these are among the most important questions that can possibly be asked. We find here further development within the narrative of Genesis of how and why it is that God can and does 
save sinners. In contrast with the worldly, power-hungry aspirations of the serpent and his seed, Noah is heir to a hope in the promised Messiah. And friend, if you do not share that hope with Noah already this morning, I say to you, repent and believe. Surely you know what was celebrated yesterday, don't you? What Yahweh God had promised concerning the seed of the woman and what he promises in this text to preserve through Noah by protecting him in the ark, that salvation hope came to earth at Christmas over 2,000 years ago. Do you know what Jesus' name means? Pastor Dan, I think, alluded to this either last week or the week before. If you break it in two, the J-E in Hebrew, that's the word Yah, which is the shortened form of God's covenant name, Yahweh. The second half of Jesus' name in Hebrew is Shoach, Yahshua. Recognize that? Joshua, another name for Jesus. Shoach is the Hebrew word for saves. So Jesus' name literally means Yahweh saves. How and why is it that God can and does save sinners? Not because we deserve it. Rather, it is because Jesus, the Son of God, who only ever existed in the form of God, took on flesh. He was born a baby in the small town of Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago, just as it is written. And he did this, ultimately, he took on flesh so that he could go to the cross for judgment. For the judgment Noah deserved. For the judgment we deserve. Friends, just as the storm of God's judgment descended on the ark, even as God preserved Noah and his descendants who had hoped in the promise, even so the storm of God's judgment descended on Jesus on the cross. And everyone who is in Christ by faith was spared from that judgment, poured out at the cross, in which we could never stand. Now as we move on to the final point in our outline, I must ask, do you have the assurance this morning that you are in Christ? And brothers and sisters, this question is to everyone hearing my voice. When later writers of Scripture recall for their readers the judgment of God in the Old Testament, they don't treat it as something from which we have fully and finally escaped as long as we are still alive on the earth and can hear these words. From 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the end of the ages has arrived. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. In Hebrews 3, verse 7, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. Friends, this word of judgment from Genesis 6 is not an idle word to us. Whether you are hearing in detail of the judgment of God for the first time, or you have known Christ for decades, the truth about God's judgment should awake in your heart the fear of Yahweh, the fear of the Lord. And this is what we see with Noah. With verse 18, we find a shift in focus to Noah and to his role in God's plan of salvation. God says, verse 18, 
but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. The world will be judged, Yahweh is saying, but I will establish my covenant with you. He's saying, the promise I made back in the garden is still good. I will preserve mankind. I will keep alive the promise of the Messiah, and I will do it through you, Noah. And although the emphasis in verse 18 is on God's role and his faithfulness, notice the second phrase, and you shall enter the ark. This picks up on the instructions God started giving back in verse 14. And here it builds as the emphasis through the end of the chapter, establishing the third pillar of our salvation hope, that God gives saving instructions. In verses 14 to 16, God gives some details of how the ark was to be constructed. It was to be constructed from a certain kind, or more likely a certain shape of wood. It was to be made watertight through the use of a sealant, and it was to be large enough with enough compartments to preserve all animal life on earth, along with Noah and his family. Interestingly, commentators seem somewhat divided here over whether the details are provided for the sake of historical fact or for more, for more theological purpose. Any idea which it is? Kind of a trick question. It's both. As modern-day apologetics ministries have rightly emphasized, the details given here help us to understand to a significant degree how it was possible, historically, for life on earth to be preserved in the ark. The historicity of this is just incredible, and we're going to see more evidence of that in the text next week. But just as importantly, this detail is provided for another theological purpose. Like with the building of the tabernacle in Exodus, the detail provided here shows the enormity of the task that God assigns to his servant, Noah. Can you imagine? This would have been backbreaking work for Noah, accumulating the massive pieces of wood and other supplies, and then fashioning them into an ark that could survive the flood. This is work that would have taken decades, or perhaps based on the time frame given in verse 3, it would have taken over 100 years that Noah worked to construct the ark. And at the same time, later scripture says he preached righteousness, condemning both the world... Or, Condemning, condemning the world both through his testimony and through his actions. You see, there would have been a whole world of people who thought that Noah was absolutely crazy. In the midst of that kind of ridicule, Noah endured as one whose hope was not on the earth, but in the promised Messiah. In verses 19 and 20, God describes how he will cause the animals to come to Noah so that he will be able to bring them into the ark to preserve them from the coming flood. In verse 21, God outlines the necessity of Noah's obedience. Noah was to gather from all food that was edible enough food to preserve the lives of all the animals and of himself and his family for the duration of the flood. So does this sound familiar? God had given food in abundance, and he would put the animals where they could be provided for. God gives Noah a simple choice. If Noah will obey then God will save humanity and the whole world through his obedience. Now think about this. What are the chances that Noah would obey? And try to think about it as if you didn't already know the end of the story. Think again of the absurdity of all of this from a worldly perspective. As we'll see next week, it is likely that it never rained on the earth at this point. 
And here, God is telling Noah, and it's for Noah to tell everyone around him, that God is going to destroy the earth through a flood. As later writers of Scripture will point out, there seemed from a worldly perspective to be no reason at all to believe in God's coming judgment. And so, how does it seem Noah would be likely to respond? Consider further the precedent of Adam and Eve. They too had a simple choice. Obey and live and the world will be blessed through you, or disobey and die and the world will be cursed through you. What had they done? They had disobeyed. And the devastating consequences of their disobedience are on full display here in chapter 6. The sinful rebellion they started has spread through the earth, and the worldwide judgment of death is about to be poured out. If past is prologue, as they say, we should expect Noah to fail, and for him to perish along with all hope for humanity. But, wonderfully, Yahweh establishes his promise of the Messiah by, for the first time, saving the many through the obedience of the one. Verse 22. Thus Noah did. This is one of those situations where by the equivalent of punctuation marks in the Hebrew text, two words are given half the weight in this verse. Noah did. That's the emphasis. And then following that mark, the emphasis is on his complete obedience. According to all that God had commanded him, so, and notice the repetition here, he did. This emphasis on Noah's complete obedience fills out further the answer to the question I posed earlier. How is it possible for someone who does not deserve salvation, someone who is a sinner, as we'll see clearly that Noah is as the narrative progresses, how is it that a sinner can be called righteous and blameless? Beloved, this is part of the rich inheritance God gives to his children. Not only does he assure us of eternal life, free entirely from sin's presence and power and penalty, he also gives saving instructions. And he gives his children a heart to keep all of his commandments. Does Noah obey perfectly from a human standpoint? No. We'll see all too soon that Noah's obedience is imperfect and incomplete from an earthly evaluation. But, as the promise of the Messiah had been handed down to him, and as Yahweh himself had come and spoken to him the words of life, Noah believed. Noah feared Yahweh. And it was in Noah's heart to do all that God commanded him. And so, my friends, the choice is before you. You are hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit this morning. The words of Genesis 6 are the words of his just judgment against your sin. Will you turn from whatever else you trust, from whatever else you fear? And will you fear Yahweh, the one true God? Do you see that he is not far off, that he in fact sees your misery? Do you see that he has made and kept promises that are more precious than you could imagine? That stepping down from his glory, he entered your weakness so that he could bear his own judgment against your sin. 
If the Lord is working on your heart this morning, friend, do you want to know what his saving instructions are to you? Jesus said, John 6, verse 29, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Believe in him. He has sent his precious son. And he has given us, in his perfect and sufficient word, instructions no less detailed and life-giving than those he gave Noah for the ark. Will you commit yourself in all of your ways, complete obedience with all of your heart? Will you commit to the glorious privilege of spending the rest of your life tracking down his life-giving promises so that you can bless the world with the testimony of his salvation? This is his call to you today. Do not harden your heart. Come. Come to Yahweh who is faithful to see you, to keep his promises, and to give you his good, saving instructions. Please pray with me. Father, you are good, and your word is good. We pray, Father, that you would cause our hearts to tremble and to fear before you, and, Father, to have the heart that you gave to Noah, Father, the heart that you promise your children when you say that the good work you've begun in us you will be faithful to complete until the day of Christ Jesus. Father, give us a heart to obey you with all of our hearts. We thank you, Father, for this text. We thank you for your word, for its sufficiency, for the historical accuracy of it, Father, for the theology of it. Father, we thank you for how it enriches our understanding, and we pray, Father, that it would result in love and good deeds. Father, we thank you for the love and the joy that we share as the fellowship of believers, Father, for the opportunity to rejoice this week in particular in the birth of our Savior. And we pray, Father, that this would all be kept by you for our good and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.